I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Gremlins. Billy Pelser has a nice home. Billy, is that you? Yeah, Ma, it's me. A nice job. A nice girl. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a date with me? I'd love to. And loving parents who are about to give him... You're gonna like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're gonna have to open it now. It won't wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift he ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Barney, be a good dog. My dad gave it to me. But there are a few things to keep in mind. If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? Yeah, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, never, never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. They become clever. Mischievous. Here. And dangerous. Gremlins, huh? Mm. Little monsters. Right. Hundreds of them. Well, I, I don't know, maybe thousands. They've been here too. Billy, what are these things? Where do they come from? Look, I know it sounds crazy, I know. But in a few hours, you're gonna have a major disaster on your hands. Directed by Joe Dante. They'll be expecting you. This is a commissioned show from Andy Rodriguez. It was originally going to be 22 Jump Street, and we were going to cover 21 Jump Street as well. But then the cops started rioting across the USA during peaceful protests against police brutality, so it just didn't really feel like the right year to discuss a funny movie about the police. So instead, we accepted Gremlins and decided to follow it up with Gremlins 2, the new batch, which all the cool kids know is even better. With us this week from Synapse is Brendan Agnew. Greetings. And from Game Burst, it's Neil Taylor. Gizmo. Zap, zap. <laughs> Run, you rabbit. And this one has jumped on the Spielberg season bandwagon as he was executive producer on this project. He's even in the movie very briefly. Did you guys spot him? Spielberg, I didn't catch until this time around. Uh-huh. And that's because I, I knew to look for him. Uh, yeah, uh, and he is, Brendan? Uh, he is actually there's there's two great visual gags during his cameo is he's the guy in the wheelchair with the cast on his leg and he's rolling by Rand Peltzer as Rand Peltzer is at the invention convention. Mm-hmm. Um, the other really cool like sight gag during that bit is there's a very H.G. Wells looking time machine in the background while mm-hmm. he's talking on the phone. Uh, it cuts to a different shot. And then when you cut back, the time machine is uh, gone. Oh, seriously? Nice. Yep. I did not notice that. I didn't notice that. Okay. This is the movie that keeps on giving. It is considered a seminal Christmas movie for those who don't favor the syrup overload and they need something to watch alongside Die Hard and later Krampus. Now, the fact that we have the argument on Twitter every single holiday season each year, ironically, absolutely makes Die Hard a Christmas movie. 
It's a tradition to bicker over it, more so than the slew of Santa pimping pablum that gets churned out every year. And if we've learned nothing else from the community episode, Our Bed's Uncontrollable Christmas, it's that we define what makes up the traditional building blocks of our season. If your family watched Ghostbusters every Xmas day and made sure the dinner table was loaded with Twinkies, then... Ghostbusters is a Christmas movie to you, and Twinkies are a fine substitute for Christmas pudding. The only bad behaviour is insisting to other people that their little seasonal comforts, the movies, foods, and quirky rituals they indulge in to cap off a hard, long year, aren't Christmas. And Gremlins, it may surprise you, was not released at Yuletide 1984, but on June the 8th, the same day as Ghostbusters. This was one of those decisions that just seems a little baffling in retrospect. Rather than launching at the beginning of summer against the sleeper hit sci-fi comedy of the decade, hindsight indicates maybe waiting six months might have been an idea. Or maybe... However, I'm guessing somewhere there was a matinee that was a great double feature of gremlins and ghostbusters oh, those lucky bastards in 1984 i mean i, I actually I, as we have established i saw ghostbusters it was the first movie i ever saw at the cinema and i would have been in june 84 maybe a little bit later because england got them a little bit later and we had a little tiny cinema but i would have been nearly four years old so i could have seen gremlins as well i think it would have scared the cack out of me <laughs> yeah. yeah or maybe The Christmas release was considered a little too risky. These rotten little green creatures lurk in potentiality for an hour, while a Norman Rockwell Christmas card picture of idealised Americana is presented to us. This evokes an era some three and a half decades before the movie, and now the same amount of time has elapsed to bring us up to today. It was a time when America was just about to ascend to power on the world stage, so it stands to reason that the years after the 1940s would be seen as a golden age of prosperity when hard-working post-depression white people were finally rewarded, an era we should go back to when everything was great. But the American dream coveted by the masses has never been as universally accessible as the brochures would have us believe. And when the Gremsters turn up, they wage war on the components of that dream, attacking dogs, children, little old ladies, veterans, mothers, teachers, defiling Christmas trees and stockings, invading the kitchen while it still smells of fresh gingerbread, taking over the drinking hole, despoiling aerobics, and ultimately rampaging around the seat of pre-mall commerce, the department store. But that's after they've expressed an unusually keen interest in the inaugural animated classic of the most successful (laughs) capitalist in American history at the time, Walt Disney. At one point, they literally swarm Father Christmas. (laughs) The message could not be clearer. Nothing is sacred anymore. And maybe Warner Brothers considered that to put this out directly adjacent with the holiest time of year might get them worse press than these untested little monsters might be worth. You can see the reasoning behind it. The placement, however, paid off in June. This $11 million dark family curious creature feature made $212 million back. 
That is Whoa. 19 times its budget. Now, that may have been just over the 35 years since with re-releases, but still. Still, that's a multiplier that gets yeah. sequels. So, tonight, we're going to look over how Gremlins goes about being itself, and why that proved so appealing to so many. And we're most likely going to be reading way too much into the script and the symbolism. But apparently not, if you've got details like the time machine disappearing. Maybe maybe it was all intentional. And we're going to hold back a bunch of this for next week, since these elements in the new batch seem a little more intentional. We just listened to the We Hate Movies, We Love Movies show on uh, Gremlins, and they pointed out that Chris Columbus is probably at his best as a writer for this film. Yes. I have difficulty in thinking of something he's done that's better written. Chris Columbus wrote a film named Reckless before this. Gremlins was only his second script. Then The Goonies, Young Sherlock Holmes. He wrote one episode of Galaxy High... He wrote Nine Months, which is an atrocity. And finally, Christmas with the Cranks. Far more prolific as a director. Adventures in Babysitting, Home Alone, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, Mrs. Doubtfire. Nine Months, which is still an atrocity. It's all on you, Chris. Stepmom, Bicentennial Man, Harry Potter 1, Harry Potter 2. Rent, I Love You Beth Cooper, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. Appropriate, since that was jumping on the Potter bandwagon. And most recently, Pixels! So yeah, in terms of writing, it's Gremlins versus Goonies, really. However, they tamed the script down quite mm. a bit. Yeah, um, actually, do you want to like reel off things that this film was originally going to be before it became... like It, it already is... It has a tone problem, as Lindsay Ellis yeah. would say. But but what was it going to have? Well, the one that, that sticks in my mind, because I, I didn't make it all the way through the, the, the uh, Joe Dante's commentary, because mm-hmm. Joe Dante is awesome, but um, yeah, the, uh, Billy's mum was going to be decapitated and they were going to bowl her head down the stairs at him. What the fuck? The, I cannot remember the teacher's name, the teacher that cops it. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently he, his death was a bit, was shot as a lot more... Um, graphic as well in the the film we see him face down with a um a hypodermic in his bum mm-hmm. uh yeah no they were going to find him face up with his face basically pinheaded with hypodermics it's like what good god and also like uh, th- there are other filmmakers out there who fished these endings out of the trash the ending you just described it wasn't a head that got bowled towards billy but the end of troll 2 a baseball gets rolled towards him and it is implied that the trolls have just eaten his mum oh lovely <laughs> One of my favorite gags that they had been going to do when this, because Columbus originally wrote this as like he was a young man and he was writing a young man's hard R nasty monster movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he he originally had one of the gags be the gremlins go into a McDonald's, eat all the patrons, and leave all of the McDonald's food. Karen Nuggets. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Karen McNuggets. <laughs> 
It's funny because they're in poor taste. <laughs> I would think Karen, Karen nuggets are in poor taste, most Absolutely. definitely. You can dip it in sour and sour sauce. <laughs> and she definitely wants to speak to your manager because they're cold. Oh my God, they co- just make this film. Just make the gremlins go to White Castle. <laughs> because this is my big fear. Because I reckon if they went either to reboot or redo Gremlins now, this is what they'd do to it. Turn it dark, edgy, and horrible. And that's not good. Mm. Uh, I mean, it is already a... dark, edgy, and horrible in this first one. But there's just enough sweetness and just enough, like, kind of, like, black humor behind it to make it, like, it's kid-friendly enough. But, I mean, this would scare little kids, and it would especially scare kids who are prone to being scared. It's a horror movie. And the mm. uh, you can really see how stuff like that fits into a movie where the gremlins literally destroy a white picket fence. Uh, this is not necessarily a, a subtle movie with its messaging, but mm. um, even, even Columbus kind of admits that the more they worked on the screenplay and... You know, they they were trying to tone it down a little bit, but the more he rewrote it, like, the better it got. I mean, Gizmo wasn't even originally going to be... Gizmo was going to be far more like an Aliens thing where all the gremlins turn evil and all the Mogwai are trying to kill everyone. And, and it was Steven who was like, well, hey, how about we have one of them be like a good guy gremlin? And and there, you know, all of a sudden you have, like, the heart of the movie just right there. And as much as Joe Dante really is a, a great r-rated horror director I, I mean i'm a big fan of you know the howling is not a like nice movie but i i really appreciate it as a as a monster practical puppet fest mm. you can also tell that his first outing making a studio movie he was having a lot of fun getting to play in a bit of a bigger sandbox mm-hmm. and that that exuberance sort of bleeds onto the screen so you do still get like the the nasty edge but you also get some some genuine excitement and investment from the filmmakers. Like these are these are young people. Um, you know, they they talk a little bit about how with with Spielberg producing right after E.T., this was a little bit like the inmates running the asylum because no one was going to stop them. This dude just made Raiders and E.T. Let him do whatever the fuck he wants. And and it's it's. Like they they had fun making this goofy little mean spirited monster Christmas movie. Um, I, well, Christmas they they might have been aiming for a Christmas release. I don't know. Like this was this was actually filmed like almost a year before it came out, mm. and I don't know if they just had a lot of tail with the the puppets and and all the visual effects and stuff. But like the they they were like filming in late summer of 1983, and so it was almost a year of of finishing up post production. So. You know, maybe they were originally going to release it in in Christmas, and then, like you were saying, Alex, maybe they're like, oh, I don't know. Maybe we're not going to have like the goblins eating Santa come out at Christmas. Let's give, a, <laughs> give ourselves some room. <laughs> Honestly, the goblins eat Santa is again a great movie that does exactly what it says on the tin.
Um, okay, Jerry Goldsmith's score in this one. I didn't really notice it quite so much before in every time I've seen it before, but I was like, wow, there's some times when he's riffing on Alien in this, in a good way. Like there, there was oh, yeah. a, there, there, There's some tension bits when he goes, ding, 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 in that same guy. Like, he affords it the same weird level of respect at certain tense moments that the super serious alien gets. Um, and then he finishes the whole thing with... It's so... like it, it swings back and forth between, like, oh, God, and totally irreverent. Well, that, in that, he manages to capture the tone of the film perfectly because the writing does exactly that, the direction does exactly that, and ultimately, if they're riffing on Alien, why on earth shouldn't he? Mm. <laughs> and to be fair, it also captures the gremlins perfectly, who do swing like that. Mm. Yeah. Um, aliens by way of Looney Tunes. So Goldberg, yeah. Goldman is Goldsmith. Goldman, Goldberg. What? <laughs> so Goldsmith is definitely channeling the right energy. Um, Rand's narration this time around. Uh, again, I, I, you, when you when you do this kind of analysis, you're looking out for things that are not so much. You're looking for things that don't just to, to pick at, but just you're looking at things that maybe aren't structured in a way that uh, that is fully elegant with the movie Rand's narration at the beginning and end of the film doesn't quite fit because he wasn't really present for all of this stuff he never I don't think he saw a gremlin no he's out of town while it all happens yeah so it's it's almost like he's this old timer going my nephew my son-in-law Colby saw all these gremlins and they was a fussing and a feuding and (laughs) you know what that could represent though what's that the 1950s invented teenagers and then washed their hands off them hmm and everybody else had to reap the whirlwind. Maybe, but there's a very specific bit just after um, he's like the, the the kid has given him Gizmo, and the, the kid says, "Wait, wait, there's some rules." And then they show slow motion shots of of him walking through the street while this kid tells him, seemingly in ADR, like you know, just like, uh, okay, uh, don't feed him after midnight. Da, 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 da. And it's such a moment of. I think they're trying to emphasize it, but because of the way it's edited, it seems like they threw it away and it's in place of a much larger sequence. And it's almost like if they'd left the much larger sequence in, why the flip did he forget them all? (laughs) Or did he not impress it upon Billy? I I think Billy just wasn't paying enough attention. Mm -hmm. They they do have him explain the rules when he first gives him Gizmo. And and the the actor, like, really... Yeah, Hoyt Axton. I... Hoyt Axton is one of the more naturalistic actors, and there are some that are very, like, over the top. Mm. Like, Dick Miller shows up just Dick Millering all over the place, and you've got these big, broad character actors doing almost riffs on It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm, and absolutely. then you have people who are who are far more naturalistic, like Hoyt Axton. Like, I mean, even... I mean, Phoebe Cates, almost to a point, right up until she starts doing the Santa monologue, is sort of on the more naturalistic side of things. But But you do have a bit of added theatricality, and and I don't know if they're trying to go with like Rand Peltzer being an unreliable narrator because of this, mm. or if it's just something that adds to the the weird sort of dreamlike created reality they have. Because they were definitely going for something heightened. They mm. they specifically shot on like back lots and studio stuff so that the gremlin creature effects would feel of a piece with a a created world rather mm. than a real world and. You know, the the mix of actors seems to work for that, even if it's 
if you start to pick it apart, it's like, wow, those are some choices you've got going on there. Well, given that the, uh, you've got this opening, which is incredibly gentle and eerie compared to the, to what starts to happen when everything hits the fan. Mm. Um, the, the tone that you end up getting this slightly misty Rand Peltzer even describes himself as um, he makes the illogical logical he has fantastical ideas for a fantastical world and that is exactly what they set up it makes it much more um, sort of having this this magical feel about it and the score feeds into that as well it's if, if you think about how this compares to say E.T., which is very, um, not that E.T. is not fantastical, but it's very grounded in reality. And this is the antithesis to this. And it almost seems to set up that these dudes are not E.T., they bite. Mm. There's even one, there's a moment of, of like, reference within a reference where uh, when they go through the department store, Stripe is hiding behind a bunch of toys the same way that E.T. hid behind a bunch of toys in E.T. Mm-hmm. But one of the toys that he's hiding behind is E.T. Is E.T. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are several Spielberg self-references in here. Mm. You noticed something or you extrapolated from what we could see, Sharon, regarding why the kid gives Rand gizmo. And you wouldn't, oh, it's this reason. I was like, no, no, no. Whoa, maybe. Okay, okay. Let's let's call this one a fan theory, shall we? Because we already know that this gizmo is trouble. Yeah. Okay, so this is kind of off the back of uh, something that you said was in the novel. Yeah, I think I read when I was about 10 the novelization, which must have been based on the original script of uh, Gremlins. So this theory is that that Gizmo is, is ancient, that he has been going for a long, long time. He is older than Mr. Wing, certainly, um, and has probably been around for several generations. I think it was implied that he had come from another planet or something a long time ago, so like it then. Yeah, but bottom line, gremlins have happened before. Yeah, they attribute them to the... the, They they reference the whole gremlin thing from the the 1940s and and turning up in the war. Exactly, and Gizmo is terrified of them, and and he is... That's why he's traumatised when they turn up again, because he's been through all of this before. Gizmo is Banner. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> by, by you want me to let the other Ripley guy out? <laughs> oh, definitely. Oh, and we will get on to that. Sorry, say that again, Brendan. Well, he's he's banner by like way of Ellen Ripley because he saw the first movie that we haven't seen, mm-hmm. so he already knows what's going to happen. Absolutely. But yeah, so so just a, it was a tiny thing building on that that maybe the responsibility for handling this mogwai and trying to prevent the gremlin thing from happening is something that's been passed down through the generations in this family and this kid has just recently found out 
that the next person it's going to come to is him and he does not want that responsibility. So he is going out of his way to foist this thing off onto the first idiot that walks into the store. Huh. I, I like that you can take this, this like, duty and shove it energy. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, obviously, in the actual <laughs> script, it was like, we've just got to hurry this one up, get this this little rat thing into uh, um, Rand Peltz's uh, sweaty mitts. There are enough elements surrounding the mythos of this that you can kind of dig further. I, I think and- it is it is necessary to have the unreliable no- narrator element at this mm. point, because if we take the rather simplistic explanation for what happens as a given and we kind of yeah okay then at the fact that we actually don't get to see the the whole of the interaction where uh, Peltzer gets told the rules by this kid mm-hmm. um, the bottom line is that he is a big relatively boisterous dude who is overindulged by his family in terms of the fact that they tolerate all of the inventions he makes, not a single one of which works the way it's meant to, and when, most of them <laughs> just waste food. That's all they do. When And make a mess. When yeah. Billy goes to... He wants orange juice. He sort of walks past that orange juice making machine and looks at it in a kind of a, oh, God, I'm going to have to try this again. Oh. <laughs> just like in his head, you can see like a, a think bubble sort of appearing and just like... Tropicana, fresh from the carton, so cool, so much better than... And then this thing just is sick all over him. (laughs) They would have been grateful they haven't got the Bluth cornballer, or they would all be dead. Oh yeah, from eighth degree burns. But the but he goes in and he's like I've I've got to have this thing I want it it's it's just a, a demand that he expects to be met he is acting like an entitled prick yes and then as soon as he sees that they can multiply his decision is oh so we'll take leaf cuttings develop little Audrey twos <laughs> Lyra uh, pointed out that the similarity that and said that since Gizmo was supposed to be evil originally he was supposed to end up as Stripe. And uh, the idea is that he looks cute, but he's actually nefarious. So, like, the whole... And this was a relatively late-in-the-day thing. They didn't realise how cute he'd look when he was actually animatronic. So then, with parts of the film already underway, they were given the orders to, to, like, you know, we need more Gizmo, and he has to hang around with Billy for the latter half of this movie, which is why he doesn't really do anything for a long while. He's sort of in a duffel bag. And then at the end, he's, he does that sort of heroic pink car saving thing. But Lyra pointed out that if he was nefarious, he'd be like Audrey too, just plotting how to get out there. Now I'm just hearing... Bubble, bubble, bubble. <laughs> Feed me. <laughs> After midnight. Feed me now. It's a minute past midnight. I don't care. <laughs> oh, uh, speaking of which, by the way, um, in the morning when the sun is definitely up is the answer to the most obvious question. We don't need to have this debate. <laughs> Just to reset up the actual town, it's clearly based on Bedford Falls in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and I'm very pleased that they reference It's a Wonderful Life. A Merry Christmas movie house! They lampshade the shit out of that. Yeah. <laughs> citing their influences. But um, it, it's, it almost works itself out as a, yeah, yes, we're doing It's a Wonderful Life, but it, it's, it's a satire on that. 
But if you go back and watch It's a Wonderful Life, there is a really hard edge to that uh, that that film and that story. It, it's not, you know, misty-eyed about Americana. It does suggest that you've got... You, there's a lot of people working extremely hard to keep that going. And Mrs. Deagle... Uh, played by Polly Holiday, who is, which is a thankless task, by the way. Like she has to basically be a villain that everybody hates. Halfway between um, Mr. Potter from uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, the Mr. Burns prototype, and Mrs. Gulch, the dog-hating old witch from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, they. I'll get you, my dear, pretty, and your little dog too. That one. <laughs> yes. Um, but she like. What she suggests in the bank is absolutely inhuman. It's horrendous. She's like, you know, I'll take him to the dog pound. It's better than what I've got in store for him. And and she she then basically details, I will torture this dog to death. You say this film isn't all that nasty. That's really freaking nasty. Yeah, I kind of noticed that. It's been a while since I don't tend to watch the first film. I tend to watch the second film. (laughs) But um, watching this time around, she's like, I start the guy. I used to think she was a cartoon villain, and now I'm like, nah, no, she is real, isn't she? She's accurate. This is what happens when Karen grows old. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she is. Yeah, she no, wants to I speak think, to your manager. I think she wants to eviscerate the manager because <laughs> the manager hides from her. It almost feels like Dante and company were sort of taking the mick out of what we've sort of pigeonholed It's a Wonderful Life as yeah. through nostalgia because we we culturally tend to relegate it to the last five minutes of the movie yeah. not the misery that, that George experiences going through the, the rest of that and seeing like the seedier side of stuff and and uh, it, it's almost like Mrs. Deagle is like okay well here's here's Mr. Potter but we're gonna we're gonna get some comeuppance on him and, and we're gonna sort of just like really tear at the at the what people think of as Norman Rockwell Americana, and and just and just sort of play with that. Mm. It's kind of delayed justice actually, because at the end of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Potter does not get any punishment. It's a very accurate ending. He just stays ridiculously rich up on the hill in his lonely old house. In this, they're like Mrs. Deagle. Yeah, we are going to kill the shit out of you through the uh, the stairlift. It's it's a spiteful move. And there was one bit. In the, earlier in that scene that they filmed, where she's talking to a photograph of her husband who has passed on, and a kind of "Oh, Harry" or whatever his name is, what are we to do? And she, because Polly Holiday was an excellent actress, she was actually kind of making people go, "Oh, I see why Mrs. Deagle is so bitter." And then the Gremlins killed her, so it didn't <laughs> feel right. <laughs> Don't make your evil character or the one you want to bump off in a nasty way sympathetic. Yeah. That's a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, unless you want the complexity, and I don't think this film could really take it. It's, this uh, film was not going for complexity. Yeah, no, it's it's going out of its way to just be gleefully anarchic. Mm. And in the other direction yes. as well, it's really on the nose with the sympathetic brushstrokes it paints Billy and Kate with. You've mm. got this whole, you know... Poor Billy's car won't start. His his dog's looking at him like he's seen him have a bad day like this before. He's late for work again. Why is he taking his dog to work? Um, is there a good enough reason for that? I'm not entirely sure, but he has a, a kind of a, an area set up under his desk and a piece of string attached to tie the dog to. Doesn't so it's, bloody it's work. Clearly prearranged. Dog goes after Mrs. Deagle like she was made out of ham. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But like, 
there's there's all these little touches like the clip-on tie and the fact mm. that his nameplate's the wrong way up that just scream, this guy is not meant to be stuck behind the counter at a bank. And obviously it reinforces that whole George Bailey thing. Mm. But it also tells you a lot about who Billy is as a character and why we should feel sorry for him straight out of the gate. And Kate as well, she's enthusiastic about the town she's very devoted to it she's you know working a couple of different jobs so Mm. that she can um, maximize the support that she provides for the town they're they're such they're such nice kids oh they're nice kids (laughs) which makes the contrast between them and again everything hitting the fan Mm. um quite acute really one of the things you mentioned with specifically with the dog it, I didn't catch until recently that Billy's not like great with pets. I always assumed that mm. he just brought his dog to work because his dog got lonely. But then watching the the movie again, it was wait a minute. If he leaves his dog unattended, the dog tears around, knocks over people's stuff, and destroys people's property. And and I don't know if it's because the dog is supposed to be some kind of escape artist. Though we do see it perfectly able to to get out of places that's supposed to stay. And I, I just kind of this this time around, I was like, oh, maybe they're just showing that he takes the dog to work because that's the only way he can like handle it and and know where his pet is and be a responsible dog owner. And and now we're going to give him something that turns into a monster. It, nothing could possibly go wrong. It's mm-hmm. That's a really good point, actually. If it's a case of that dog is not the best trained dog in the world and you expect this kid to remember things about not eating after midnight. Yeah. It's a nice sort of like proof of concept that like mm. Billy's probably not the best person to be given. And it's also, when his dad comes home with this box, he's like, it's a puppy, isn't it? Like, oh yeah, more dogs <laughs> that can go, just go running wild and eat our furniture. See, I always took it as he, he took Barney to work because he was afraid uh, Mrs. Deagle would get a hold of him. Honestly? About it. That yeah. does make sense. Because she's yeah, that kind of was, person. Yeah, she, she strikes me as the kind of person that wait till he's not around and dog-nap him. And get his little dog, too. Yeah. Um, speaking of horrible characters, Gerald, played by Judge Freakin' Reinhold, uh, the brown-nosed career guy who taunts Billy for not being like him and represents the selfish guy, the, the businessman that Billy could be if he wasn't so much like he's an artist. Hmm. Um, yeah. I like the way he's characterized better in, in Gremlins 2, but um, then Judge Reinhold just kind of disappears. It, yes. like, I, you, I forget until I see the film again and go, oh, hang on a second, there's no encounter with a gremlin for judge reinhold yeah. he's just an asshole who disappears yeah he he's there then he's gone and they're substituting cory feldman who's here for no reason i think it feels like getting cory feldman there was like just to say it's okay kids we've got one like you here mm. and then cory feldman at least ends up later using a, a, a wrist rocket slingshot against gremlins but we never see the outcome of that he may have just ended up swarmed and he eaten. He got eaten. Oh, my but that, Lord. But he does... But he dealt with Jason. Yeah. So uh, he, he could probably deal with gremlins. Of, and, and vampires as well. And vampires, yeah. Um, so, and <laughs> the Fratellis. Yes. <laughs> and the foot. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. No wonder. Oh, dear. And cocaine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> cocaine. Actually, maybe cocaine dealt with him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's effectively what I was going to say. And then I thought, no, I'm not saying that. That's mean. That's okay. <laughs> not that I think Corey Feldman's ever going to hear this podcast. No. But anyway. I, I liked Corey Feldman's appearance in, yeah, well, in 80s he's movies. He's there as kind of uh, the, uh, the general townsfolk who are not 
unseeingly stupid about what's going on in the town. He's usually reasonably aware about what's happening. He makes some attempt to fight back, but he's not the protagonist. Mm. So that's what you get Corey Feldman in for. Gizmo is the absolute secret weapon of both these films. I called him a little rat earlier. I adore Gizmo, specifically from Gremlins 2, but he's still great in this. He is perfectly designed in that second one. They they still had a few kinks to work out for this one, and apparently the puppet kept malfunctioning, and there were a multitude of different ones. Like, when he's making a little face, that's a different puppet to the rest of them. Um, but like just his voice by uh, by um, what's that guy's name? Harry Mandel. That's the thank one. you. Yeah, uh, expertly handled. Just a few things. He's not like an annoying little runty thing that just keeps talking. He's sentient, definitely. He's thinking about things, but he's he's not like Mushu in uh, Mulan who, or, or Donkey in Shrek. Why am I picking on Eddie Murphy? <laughs> just as an annoying. Sa- okay, right. He is he is the go-to for annoying psychic characters. Yeah, okay. But Donkey is like Judge freaking Reinhold compared with uh, Martin Short in Treasure Planet, for example, as Ben. Mm. Or Jar Jar. First off, Gizmo is not an annoying animal sidekick. Mm-hmm. He is effectively front and centre as, as one of the main characters, except for the big chunk of this where he disappears, like you said. Mm. But the other thing is as well, I think, again, where... I was talking about them using fairly broad brushstrokes in terms of making sure that we connect with and sympathise with Billy and Kate. Um, They are not backward in... um, They're not shy about making sure that there are points of connection between Billy and Gizmo straight up front. The, the, um, The bit for me that really clinches it is when... Billy is trying to replicate the little um, tune that Gizmo hums. That, when you have two beings that don't speak each other's language, as Spielberg knows very well, replicating each other's mm-hmm. music and saying it back to each other is, is a, a form of communication. Brendan's favourite. So that might give um, weight to the whole theory that uh, that Gizmo is an alien, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and that music but, is a universal language. Exactly. But the fact that Gizmo gets involved in it, and when Billy gets it wrong, corrects him very quickly because he's been observing what notes he presses to get the right keys and everything. Mm-hmm. So that reinforces the whole, we know he's sentient, we know he's intelligent. Um, there, he's He's got that sort of, um, you know, maybe in his... Uh, species he's like Billy a little bit on the creative side but generally considered a bit naff and useless by people who would really prefer that he was better at being a bank teller or um, more business driven or something so it just kind of gives you that you know these are kindred spirits sense which that relationship is then going to carry us all the way through not just this movie but um, Grumman's 2 as well I don't know why but my mind suddenly went to Venom for reasons in that one, Venom basically turns around and says, yeah, by the way, I'm actually kind of like you. I'm kind of pathetic and no one likes me. I'm a loser like you, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> and that popped into my head for some bizarre reason. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. 
Also, if, if music is a universal language and can be understood across species or even planets, we cannot allow EDM to exit our solar system. It could trigger an interstellar war. <laughs> really? You went with EDM out of all the choices you're going to go on with? I don't know. I was going to say dubstep, but I kind of like dubstep. <laughs> to, to like go back to gizmos, like this, what makes the film work, I, I think there's like a very literally mechanical reason why that that's true as well, because gizmos are introduction to the creature effects and if we buy the you know there's definitely limitations to the the creature puppet i know they had problems with it but if you buy the like the cute little semi-dog looking thing as at least it exists in the world um which they do a a very solid job of doing even though Mm. you can tell there are improvements between one and two you know they they do a good job of like selling you gizmo and if they if you buy into gizmo then you're going to buy into basically everything else, and that's all. You know, that's also very important because if you're not at least buying into the the gremlins sort of existing as gremlins rather than just little rubber things, then nothing, either the horror or the humor, really is going to land for the mm. entire back half of the film. Yeah, you have to buy into him. It doesn't. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't work without him. Plus, if you bought into him when he's cowering in the it's a space helmet or something, isn't he? He's carrying in a helmet when mm. the, the 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 chrysalis is chrys yeah, the things are hatching. <laughs> I can't say <laughs> the eggs. The eggs. The pods. Okay, yeah, pods. Yeah, when the pods are you you buy into his feeling like, okay, if he's afraid and they've come from him, what's about to happen? Mm. I noted that uh, uh, Goldsmith really lent on Alien when we saw those pods. It was like, oh, those. The, I see what you're doing there. Gizmo starts to really get uh, this. This is all going to go wrong on his face. They do do a fantastic job of, uh, like you know, if you look at Gizmo once the uh, other Mogwai have eaten uh, and they and they have become pods. Uh, like we said before, he's seen this happen and he knows bad things come of it, and he's frightened. Like I said, he's he's Banner. And it, it really characterizes him to the point where they they kind of carry that forward. And I would posit that Gremlins 2 is actually a movie about Gizmo. There's a lot that I want to say for that show, yeah. but I would I would agree, and I would go one step further, not to like blow blow this wide open yet, but I would say that like Gizmo is the one character in Gremlins 2, and everyone else, even slash especially returning characters, are much more caricatures of themselves in this. Hmm. But that means that this story is not Rand Peltzer's, but Billy's. Uh, And I extrapolated a while ago that Gremlins is a parable about unexpected 
parenthood. Uh, I don't know whether uh, Chris Columbus had just had a new baby, but it just felt like it, it, there was a, a, a sting of authenticity there of the very early years and the transitioning from like just a few weeks to maybe two because you got your first new baby that starts out cute and cuddly and adorable and manageable and easy to relate to. And then before you know it, you've let your guard down and taken a few too many things for granted. And then there's loads of them and they're causing absolute chaos and they're exhausting and a little bit frightening because of how hard to fathom they are. This was my responsibility. And now these green scaly things are going crazy. It's a nightmare of what will my child become? Well, to take that and run with it, one of my half-joking but half-very-serious assertions about children is that if you don't teach them empathy, they're just going to eat you because children aren't necessarily born thinking other people are people, Mm. and they spend the first year of their lives feasting on other people's bodily fluids, and it's like, well, why stop? It's fun. Um, But gremlins are very much a very heightened version of that, and what's more, I think that's why this concept as creepy as it can be for kids is very appealing to children especially once you see how it was merchandised and how kids responded to it mm. because kids see grandmas and like oh it's me but with the wheels off <laughs> yes <laughs> and that does actually tie in really well with what you see the gremlins do when they get loose because you're exactly right Brendan it's a case of kids will start to imitate the behavior that they see as they grow up and as they start to become aware of other people around them they will pick up on the behaviors that are expected of them by observing what behaviors are going on in their respective adults and what do we see the gremlins doing when they get out into the town they drink they smoke they do aerobics they do aerobics for some reason (laughs) they dress up but they they generally go over the top and and behave in the the worst ways that they've seen other people behaving. You're describing civilization. <laughs> Save it. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Murray Futterman, as you mentioned uh, before, uh, Joe Dante uh, mainstay Dick Miller. Uh, he's been in pretty much everything that I think I've ever seen Joe Dante do. Uh, he was in The Howling, yep. um, Erie, Indiana. He was uh, repeatedly oh, in that show. That was uh, I love that show. Yeah. Uh, we, we watched it um, after Gravity Falls just because we needed something just that felt like Gravity Falls. He's even the guy who gives the kid the small soldiers off the back of the uh, lorry in Small Soldiers, which is kind of a spiritual successor to Gremlins. That's your Gremlins 3. Uh, and he's a bit of an old racist in this. A like, bit. <laughs> a lot of an old he's racist. Not, okay, he's not 
he's definitely xenophobic in that one. That's yeah. definitely for sure. Yeah, he's he's uh, you know talking about how you know imagine if you got your car back or is it your tractor back and it was full of foreign parts. Yes, he he gets drunk and can't handle this mm. fact. And it's, it's like you know, it's, oh no, no no wonder this tractor doesn't work. It's made in Japan. You know, what are you talking about, Murray Fadiman? All the best stuff is the from there. <laughs> I don't know where to mention this, but you know the song that spun me out for ages as a kid when what? I used to watch this film. I'm like, but this is Hill Valley. Yeah, but it's not Hill Valley. I, I could be wrong, but I, I, I that the when the movie theater blows up at the end, I'm like, is that where they had all G American style in Back to the Future playing in the 80s? Possibly. And uh, the Ballad of David Crockett in the 50s. I'm sure they said in the We Hate Movies podcast something yeah. about there being um, sets that it was the same lot. Was... I just I didn't see the clock tower, and unless you see the clock I, tower, I, it ain't Hill Valley. <laughs> but it's just just in my head, I, I, I half the time I'm going. It's Hill Valley. No, it's not Hill Valley. But it's Hill Valley. It's not Hill Valley. Especially because it's just like, it's so, rec- it's, you still see bits that are so recognisable to Back to the Future. Mm. It just spins me out sometimes. It is a bit odd that you have both of these movies specifically dealing with a a response to our collective memory of the 50s because so much of Back to the Future is about yeah. going back to the 50s. It's like, eh, this kind of sucked. And then this this movie is very definitively about like, Hmm, what if Norman Rockwell, but it was also kind of trash because <laughs> you you still had the same basic issues that you have now back then. Mm. Yeah. Um they they I know they they were definitely both shot like very on the lot studio style um because like Dante actually whether he learned all of it from Spielberg or whether he already had some sense of it before um he definitely comes off as having a very clear idea of how to get people to buy this stuff and how to get audiences invested. I know that he's had, you know, like some, some weird ups and downs as a filmmaker, but just watching him kind of really enter the big leagues confidently with this movie, he's got a lot of really good chops and really refreshing, like just stylistic ticks that come through on this. And that kind of helps me sort of like differentiate it from the from the rest of the movies um, that would normally otherwise go like, wait a minute, I've seen that actor from that thing, or wait a minute, that building looks exactly like that, um, because Dante is is very much kind of impish with with the way he's shooting this. Joe Dante has directed Piranha, which I've not seen, although I have seen Piranha Two: The Spawning, and we're saving that for our James Cameron season to uh, do a quick review on. Dante did The Howling, which is a weird kind of fucking werewolves movie if you like werewolves fucking that's your movie but you probably already know that he did the segment of the twilight zone movie it's a good life the one with the uh, kid who can control the world he directed explorers which is all right inner space which is fantastic i love that the burbs don't love anywhere near as much it's a tale of white suburbanites headed up by tom hanks worried because weird foreigners have moved in next door they probably eat people Oh, actually, no, sorry, it was our own suburban paranoia. We were the villains all along. Oh, no, wait, the weird foreigners were, in fact, people-eaters. It has an uncomfortable philosophy behind it. Gremlins 2, The New Batch, maybe his best film. Matinee, I've never seen. Small Soldiers, like I said, spiritual successor to Gremlins. And a kind of a fun condemnation of the military-industrial complex. Looney Tunes back in action. And The Hole, which is an unusual kids' horror movie. Very psychological, definitely worth watching. 
in Friede. Originally, Murray Futterman was supposed to die when they, uh, tra- I think both of them were, when the tractor bursts into his uh, room. Uh, the the way that the film is edited makes me feel like there were bits when they said, that when, when the police chief picks up the uh, phone and goes, the Futtermans, like that they cut past a moment of him saying, they were crushed by his own tractor. Um, and it's, it's they never actually say they're definitely alive. They just bring them back in Gremlins 2, which was like... Six, seven years later? Yes, six years later. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in, in the uh, original book, it just, it, it was, there was a lot more of a body count. And uh, you mentioned before that the uh, old science teacher, Mr. Hansen, uh, ended up with all the, like, syringes in his face. Not mistrust of science, exactly, but I took Hansen's attitude, um, and it was Lyra that gave me this thought, actually, when she said about how rough he is with um, the, the mogwai he mm. has when he's taking the blood sample from him. Um, it, he's, it's an extension of Rand Peltzer's entitlement. Mm-hmm. I have $200, therefore I get this thing that I want. And in Hansen's case, it's, I'm here for science, and therefore it doesn't matter how I treat this creature, which is quite aside from the fact that it's a it's a, a sentient being and that's something that he seems to be oblivious to it's a living creature it's it doesn't hurt you to be gentle with the animals mm. that you're you know but examining. school school biology teachers are the ones who hand out the frogs and say cut them open while they're still alive you'll notice their lungs are still moving this is very true and it did make me think actually of the um the uh, science teacher in the faculty yeah mm who also, um, through obliviousness, manages to launch Oh, that's John Stewart, isn't it? Uh, I think it might be, actually. (laughs) He gets a pen in the eye. Mm. Lynn Peltzer defending her her domestic setting, utilising her favourite tools. This is the mum. I think this is probably the best crafted moment in the film itself. Uh, She's an absolute badass. Yeah. Uh, There's a bit where she pulls out a carving knife and then she goes, nah, and pulls out a second carving knife. So she's double (laughs) fisting these things. She is like, she's really ready to defend her home. Well, it's worth noting that immediately before that, she has a knife in one hand and a tray table in the other that she's using as As a shield. shield, Yeah. The shield gets chucked and she's like, okay, we are going in both ends with this Mm. one. But the the, the tension of that whole uh, sequence like exacerbated in just the right way by that do you see what i see song sung by johnny mathis just exceptional choices of uh framing and uh music and sound from uh, goldsmith and just holding that tension because when you boil it down the gremlins themselves like if you're in a corridor and a gremlin's at the other end you know and if the gremlin's unarmed you could just take a run and punt it <laughs> And it's not really going to be able to do you much damage. It, the, the gremlin requires cunning and camouflage uh, and surprise to actually get you. And the and sharp objects. And it's also noteworthy saying that the gremlin deaths in this sequence are incredibly satisfying. The microwave oh, is so good. The yeah. microwave. Although the blender is also really good. Mm, his little legs flugo round and yeah. round. Yeah. <laughs> What goes green and red, green and red, green and red, green and red? Gremlin in a blender. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's no. like... Uh, 
any uh, sympathy you might have for the gremlins is kind of out the window when you see that they strung the dog up uh, a while before. That's just when they were Mogwai. So, uh, and they, they really are nasty little shits. The night wind to the little lamb. Do you see what I see? see see? Way up in the sky, little lamb. Do you see what I see? see Any mogwai that comes out of Gizmo is just automatically the opposite. They're absolutely evil. They're all definitely little dickheads. Yeah, he's he's definitely the nice one. They they even comment on it. Um, but the the other thing you were um um you were talking about the kitchen attack. The other thing I love about that is how much they set up the geography of the kitchen and the functionality of all of all those gadgets for the first half of the movie, just so they can pull every single trigger in the kitchen and have it turn on like it, it almost turns like little a little carnival funhouse of like okay we've got the the juicer and the microwave and the, this and the and all this stuff that you can either go off uh and and have it like scare someone because it's a like a false thing or to be used as a weapon um the the other thing that's sort of related to that being that they have like Chekhov's sword fall off the wall <laughs> literally like two yeah. or three times until billy comes in and uses that as the the big like okay chop it off the head hero save thing um the there there's a lot of that that's just very fun to watch satisfyingly play out of just the basic filmmaking language used super effectively in addition to the fact that this is like a little bit of a, a blast of nasty monsterness a blast of nasty monsterness one of the things I really like about this kitchen sequence as well is the there's loads of tiny little details that you don't pick up on necessarily the first time because you're so busy laughing uproariously mm-hmm. at the gremlin in a blender and the gremlin exploding a in a microwave. <laughs> a microwave. <laughs> but little things like um, the uh, the footprints on the wall behind Grip the prints. record player mm-hmm. um, because they've somehow managed to come down the wall which then begs the question are they like Spider-Man? Can they, Did they leap across to the, the wall? Lyra noticed that uh, the gremlin that's in the kitchen eating stuff was biting all the heads off the gingerbread men but mm-hmm. leaving the rest. Yep. <laughs> Just like the head. Absolutely. Well back to that toddler analogy again really because yeah. that's what Michael likes to do. <laughs> <laughs> well we theorised it's because that's where all the frosting was. <laughs> I'm sure you fed him after midnight to make absolutely sure. <laughs> not since it's, he was, not since he came off bottles anyway. Oh, okay. It's it's got to be one of those universal like the first bite is always the best things because Marion was taking one bite of her strawberries today and I had to convince her to eat the whole thing. I still do that with bottles of beer, like a really frosty beer. The that just the first sip is like, oh, that's so good, and then it's like mm, that tastes like actual vomit. <laughs> Okay, so um, the gremlins at the bar went like this. Is after Stripe has um, uh, you know done his little pool trick, and uh, we hate movies. We're asking whether the was diegetic or non-diegetic. Like, is that actually Stripe going, "Oh yeah," or was that Jerry Goldsmith adding gremlin noises to his score? 
<laughs> well, according oh, to I'm the multiplying. <laughs> wow. <laughs> according, to, according to Dante, yeah. like it was Goldsmith specifically putting in sounds that okay. could be the Gremlins, and that 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 was like a thing they were intentionally going for. Okay, that's that makes sense. If it, if it was Goldsmith's fault, that's cool. Um, oh, I, I I keep forgetting that he's not with us anymore. Like we 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 covered um, Poltergeist uh, earlier this year, and that was just one of his absolute best as well. When they're at the bar and they're, they're kind of doing a soft version of the level of uh, differentials between gremlins in the second one, but like where they're like, well, what if we put a hat on this one, a sunglasses on this one, a sweater on this one, a wig on this one, a wig. This one's going to flash. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I noticed that there's this like one gremlin who's just sitting there with whiskey, just like going, ah, oh, jeez, like he's like. It's like, you know, my, my life is, uh, well, it's, it's been three hours long so far, but it has not turned out the way I wanted it to. <laughs> no, he's just saying, I am surrounded by idiots. Maybe that. Yeah, maybe Why he's... you have puppets? Maybe he's Shredder in uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 80s version of Ninja Turtles. Like, you know, they're babies! These gremlins are babies! Like, maybe he's the one that got away while all the rest of them went to watch uh, Snow White. He was like, you know what? I got a boiler maker here. I'm just going to sit and nurse it. There's no real best place to put this, but we keep talking about Rand Peltzer as this incredibly demanding, like, shitty white guy. He probably gets away with it because he has an avuncular Tom Bosley-ish quality about him. Like, he's, he seems like an affable, likeable guy, so when he does behave in a way that is entitled, we kind of overlook it, which is how systemic stuff maintains. Yeah, yeah, We're able to true. overlook this sort of stuff. There's also a little bit of uh, Dell from Planes, Trains and Automobiles there. Hmm. It's not quite as as uh, over the top obnoxious as Dell can seem but I think because... He's also not as charming as John Candy because well, nobody was. That is very true but I think because he has a little bit of that about him um there is sort of this tendency to think, well, there's, there's, there must be more going on. You know, he's, he's obviously, he's a, he's a good dad, and he's devoted to his family. No, he's not. His family aren't making any money off of these inventions. inventions Billy yes. is supporting this family with his bank job. Yeah. That's what's I happening. Did, there. I kind of, <laughs> you kind of do wonder how they afford that house. Yeah. Mm. Oh, they bought it in the fifties when housing was really, really cheap. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's in Pottersville. Maybe he quit the job he had before and because he'd mm. always wanted to be an inventor and now they had the house paid off, he could afford to. It sucks because I, I like the idea of inventing and I like the idea that you can make a messy, 
kind of doesn't work version of something and then refine it until it's actually a clean does work version of things. But it again ties in with this theme of um, the the illusion of 1950s America and the actual 1950s America selling us a shed load of shit we didn't need in the first place. Yeah. A lot of stuff in the 50s was about selling you the idea of convenience, but what it was actually doing was selling you a product that you didn't actually need in your life in the first place. Absolutely, and all it does is cover you in toothpaste. It doesn't make breakfast at all. Now you can make jello pudding every day. Yeah, after the bar sequence, when Kate has been trying her best to be a bartender after hours, and it's like, at this point, you could be forgiven, Kate, for going, I'm just going to pop out back to just refill the taps and then just scarp her. But she's like, doing her job. And it's like, you really didn't have to do that, Kate. But um, Phoebe Kate's wonderful actress. Uh, yeah, incredible. Uh, our favourite film she's in is Drop Dead Fred, and we're probably going to do that at some point. It's... Um, Dismissed by most people as if who like most people have forgotten it, but uh, those uh, adults who've seen it, saw it in the first place. Uh, it's just like well, this is just I mean, messy, stupid, I, and juvenile. I may be wrong, but is that like Rick Mail's only feature film? Yeah, that's yeah. it. He's uh, like, he was he was in Remember Me, a uh, film that everyone's forgotten, a British uh, comedy, tragic comedy. Uh, but I can't remember him in much else beyond that. He was like a family man in that. Um, but what? Yeah, yeah, no, seriously, he was like a, a, a husband who was in a, a loveless marriage, trying to. It sounds weird, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's Rick Mail. It's Flash Art. It's Drop Dead Fred. Yeah. It's, don't, it, 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 but it's Rick for the young ones. It doesn't add up. It doesn't. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so Phoebe Cates in Drop Dead Fred is fantastic. The film is about a woman who's going through a nervous breakdown as her whole life collapses around her and getting in touch with various facets of her own personality internally, which match what's going on outside. It's totally and deliberately written from a psychological point of view, and we will totally be doing that as a show at some point. But she gets to do one really great scene in this, and that's the talking about what happened for her at Christmas. And I feel like this either makes or breaks the film for you when you watch it. Like, it's just, it's a bit too much for mothers with the, I got kids here at that point. Like, like it's possible some kids went into the uh, uh, cinema still believing in Santa Claus. And then they saw him get savaged by gremlins. And then they were told by Phoebe Cates that that's how she found out he doesn't exist. This incredibly sobering, sad, almost exotically bizarre story. And the film kind of doesn't really know where to go after that or know how to acknowledge that that has just transpired. Billy just stands there with a sort of a dumbfounded look on his face. And by the way, Zach Gilligan's a really lovely guy and he tweets all the time about Gremlins because that was obviously a very special time in his life. And, you know, specifically his love for Gizmo. Uh, but Billy as a character is kind of uh, like a slack-jawed gawker at this stage while she's bearing her soul to him. And at least later on in, in Gremlins 2, he seems to be kind of developing into more of a responsible guy. Uh, and and to have more agency. But the film kind of... It doesn't stall, but it delivers this hammer blow to you and then goes, right, so shall we just go and destroy this cinema that they're, they're watching Snow White? <laughs> it literally is the... That's well, that got dark. <laughs> but I, it, it's a weird Hi-ho. thing. 
<laughs> it's clearly set up that she's she's got trauma. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that I think works slightly against that scene is that Phoebe Cates, that, that was like reportedly the, the part of the script that made her go, yes, I want to take the part because mm. I want to I want to take this like weird, crazy, satirical, darkly funny monologue and just crush it. And she does, but she's such a good actress that she she doesn't she doesn't like over over egg things, but yeah. she delivers it so just like haunted, plain facedly that like oh wow, I could almost forget that just the just like the thought of trying to stuff a full grown man in a, in a chimney because like I don't know how many people like have fireplaces in suburbia across the pond, but but like I've got one. And I couldn't fit my kid up there. So, like, just just tell you this elaborate story about how, like, there was a whole ass person in that chimney for weeks. Like, I'm just sitting there going, yeah, okay, sure. And just, like, cracking up. And so I, I can't take it seriously enough to, to get, like, heart-stricken. But she's playing it like you could really just, like, kind of have your heart break for her a little bit. Because... Like you said, it, you know, Neil mentioned like she's got this trauma. They even start to tell that story a couple times earlier in the movie, or at least clue you into the fact that she's not into Christmas, so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it comes out of left field. It, it feels like a payoff, but it's a payoff in the form of like this really nasty joke. Yet, yet, this movie might be a favorite at Christmas for a lot of people who do have tragedy in their past for around this time of year, and that story horrendous and tragic as it is might offer some measure of comfort that they're not alone it's also so much worse so spectacularly worse than pretty much all of our worst christmas stories that there's a certain measure of schadenfreude is not the word but you commiserate with kate and you're glad you're not her you're not happy at her misfortune but you're relieved that your Christmas woes aren't as bad. I also think it's important where the story falls in in the film as well. Yeah. Because this film is, quite frankly, anarchic. Oh, yeah. It starts off with a peace and calm, and it's showing you that the craziness of the film isn't just limited to, hey, here's some weird gribblies doing crazy things like flashing, drinking, shooting each other. (laughs) And, yeah, that was the bar scenes. In no sense, civilised. But it also shows you that the human characters are somewhat anarchic because anyone with trauma, sometimes they just get it out. You you sometimes, when you find someone you want to get it out, it does come out at an inopportune time. And that's kind of what happens here. She's found this guy, she likes him, but she has this thing, this huge weight, and she needs to get it out. And all of a sudden there's this opportunity to unload it. And she does. And it's not always with... (laughs) Trust me, I know this from the hard way. You know, sometimes you don't have the opportunity moment. You just sometimes blurt it out. And uh, yeah, it can be strange. There's a parallel moment in uh, J.J. Abrams' film, Super 8, where uh, a story not a million miles dissimilar to that, but it's about uh, unloading dreadful, dreadful guilt is uh is imparted and it's shared between the two um child leads and that one hits a really wonderful moment of melancholy i think that's this scene done in the in a way that crystallizes super eight's intentions and the payoff at the end 
relates back to that. Mm. You'll, we'll, you'll know it when we get to it because we are covering Super 8. Mm. But, uh, but yeah. also, as, as Neil says, Gremlins is a very anarchic film and the pacing of the story mm. is anarchic as well, whereas Super 8 is much more structured and, um, and well-regulated, yeah. shall we say. You couldn't really get, you could not get the emotional resonance of uh, Super 8 or even E.T. into Gremlins. Mm. And they weren't even, I I don't believe that the aim here was to try. Mm. They wanted it to be a a step away from that. Yeah. And the, the, I think one of the reasons, because that was such a contentious scene that they got to keep the the Santa monologue in, Mm. is that sort of the closest thing this movie has to a, a low point or an all is lost moment before we really start kicking in the fireworks for act three with blowing up the theater and the, the big chase is that that's close because they, they pulled back because they wanted to play it up as being more family comedy than nasty R rated horror, which I think works, but it means you don't have like a, a low point of like, you know, Oh no, the mom died or, Oh no, we, we lost to this or that, or, you know, that's the all. So instead it's like this, this weird, sad character beat and then we we move into into the rest of it. Um, like like Neil said, that's it's very very like anarchic in in structure. But I think that might have worked to its favor because some studio head could put, well, we've got to have this because that's when they're sad. Well, the the well, not the funny thing is, but Joe Dante had to fight tooth and nail to keep that scene in. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know. I know they like at some point they they were like, there's no way we're going to be able to keep this in even after they shot it, but. Yeah, I, I know that it, it that was one of the things he was like, nope, we're keeping it in. It helps that they had more extreme scenes like the a guy with a face full of syringes that you go, okay, you can <laughs> you take can that out, that. but we're keeping dead Santa. <laughs> well, apparently they, they went over Dante to Spielberg. Dante went to Spielberg and Spielberg says, do you like the scene? He went, yeah, I want to keep it. Spielberg says, okay then. And that was it. You went over that my one. helmet? <laughs> he went over his helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, thinking about it, like I said that this is this film's about Billy. It's not a Marvel movie. It's not a Pixar movie. There's no moment when Billy goes, I realize I have been irresponsible, and I'm in. I'm sorry, Gizmo. I, I didn't treat you like I should have done with the responsibility and the respect. I I will do this from now on. But we've got to we've got to save the town. Just some moment where Billy realizes he's got to step up to the plate on this one. He doesn't. It doesn't. That's why Marvel movies are great, and that's one of the reasons why Pixar movies are great. That's why Billy gets his ass kicked. Gizmo has to save his ass in the end yeah. <laughs> because uh, he, he's he's barely a match for uh, uh, Stripe and um, the uh, the hunting around the um, uh, department store. Like the bit where Stripe goes comes for him with a chainsaw. I mean, like that. that just in itself is just a is a sort of a wonderful moment of ah it's like the bit in Evil Dead 2 when Ash is in the tool shed and he looks around and he pulls back the curtain and then there's this chalk outline of a chainsaw and he goes chainsaw and then Linda's headless body bursts through the door it's just like 
there's a certain gleeful, oh yeah, we got the chainsaw now, which was, I think, begun with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but that was never supposed to be a film that was gleeful. But then the chainsaw itself became kind of emblematic as like a horror implement, and then um, Sam Raimi did crazy things with it in Evil Dead 2 after Gremlins, noteworthy. But the, this Gremlin here, when it comes for him, and he's only got a wooden bat to defend himself, it's a really nasty moment, because you're like, well, this thing could really straight up murder him if he slips. Well, this is, this is the thing about the chainsaw as a, a representative of, um, not I'm not going to say modern horror, but like technological, mm, no, it's not even technological horror, mechanical horror. Um, it's a, a chainsaw will fuck you up, basically. Whether it is switched on or off, whether it has fuel in it or not, even if somebody just drops a not switched on chainsaw on your head, that is going to make a mess. I think, yeah, it's just the fact that chainsaws are so dangerous, you could really mess yourself up on your own. Absolutely. Like they're nunchuckers times ten. malicious intent, <laughs> you can still That's kill yourself with a chainsaw. The chainsaw is always a crowd pleaser. See mm. Doom, see Gears of, Gears of War, see Warhammer 40k. Yeah, you're not wrong. It's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> they love it. Um, <laughs> the only thing better than a chainsaw is a wood chipper. Ooh. Tucker and Dale versus, <laughs> Tucker and Dale versus <laughs> Evil. Yeah. Versus evil. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the, the 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 whole like sequence around uh, the department store, like originally as written in the script, would have been that the evil gremlin that was previously Gizmo needs to be destroyed by Billy, who I mean, like that. At that point, you can take out the intention of this is what happens when you become a new parent because if. Like, if the end of the movie was, I love you, cute little thing, but I must kill you because you've got the chainsaw now, <laughs> then it's like, okay, that's like Jack-Jack attack, but, but, but terrible. Yeah. But it is still attached to that uh, symbolism of something without any sense of responsibility or decent guidance loose in capitalism. Mm. At that point, you're almost looking at the at the gremlins themselves as being less a metaphor for early childhood and, and new parents than it is for something that uh, America culturally appropriates from someone else and then commercializes, mass produces, and twists into this like monstrous inversion of what it's supposed to be and has to be destroyed. Absolutely, yeah. and they slap it on a plastic lunchbox. That that was definitely intentional. When Key Luke turns up at the end, the uh, the old Chinese man from the beginning, and says, you've you know, ruined this mogwai the way you've ruined the environment, and then sort of glares out at the screen and points a finger, and it'll happen to you at all of Generation X. And, uh... We didn't listen! And ultimately, yeah, the, the, the whole film was supposed to be you have an incredible responsibility on your hands. Don't fuck this up. But there is and, a... And then it got super commercialized. Well, yeah. yes, indeed. Dolls with little suction is... cups on their feet. No, I, I just have you, Malcolm, in my head. You didn't know what you had, and then you packaged it, and then you slapped it on a lunchbox. Plastic lunchbox. <laughs> And now uh, you're selling it, so... You're selling you With batteries. Um, but, but that is, I think, where this sort of hint that Rand was not ready for the responsibility of actually paying attention to the rules, and he thought that because he had money, he could have whatever he wanted. 
Billy having now seen the mess that's caused when that happens mm. has a chance that one day mm. he might possibly be ready um, to make good on that relationship that he started forming with Gizmo. And ultimately, Billy is our Gen X representative in this film. Mm-hmm. Billy and Kate. And yeah, the uh, key Luke says, you know, one day you may be ready and then Mogwai will be waiting. Absolutely. And but it's not Mr. Peltzer who's going to be ready. It's not yeah, that no. generation. Which is kind of a, like, let's leave Norman Rockwell and company behind, yeah. shall we? Which is the... Yes. We didn't start this fire? <laughs> yeah, appropriate, actually. Uh, and uh, I also put a little note uh, here down the bottom. We, collectively, as a human race, are so lucky that Mogwai do not exist. <laughs> because if you look at what people did this year and are still doing at the time of recording, when we ask them to just wear a mask for the health and safety of themselves and everybody around them, uh, you could imagine if everyone had mogwais and it's like, don't feed them after midnight. I'll feed my mogwai after midnight. You can't make me not. Here, have a banana. <laughs> don't get away. We're gonna I'm going to have mogwai parties. <laughs> you see, I just saw that it's the bar scene for me. I saw that bar scene. I watched this today. Mm-hmm. So I know I, don't, I know you don't like dating this, but the pubs in the UK opened yesterday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gee, I couldn't tell the difference between new new footage of the pubs opening up and the scene in Gremlins. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, no, that seems rather apt at this time. I was feeling a little bit dark when I was watching this film. I have to admit. Well, I suppose you could then read it as a parallel that we're all Mogwai, and then you get drinking us, and we become Gremlins. I think there's a little yeah. beach in all of us. <laughs> there's a little Gramster in all of us. There's, like, one super quick shot of, like, when I, I can't remember at some point, like, the Marines are coming in to save the day or something, and someone's got, like, fire hoses. Mm. And, and yeah, the like, DJ says, are they going to put the fire hoses on them? Oh, oh yeah, and it's like, wait a minute, hold on, that's not... Just just the, the, the hair's breadth by which people avoid just utterly wrecking themselves in this movie, it, yeah, no, it definitely feels appropriate right now. I know. It's scary. We've been hearing a lot of this fake gremlin news. It's a big Chinese conspiracy spread about by the liberal mogwais. Could we perhaps ingest cleaning products? Maybe to keep the gremlins away? Incredible preventative measures. I've been hearing all about these. Believe me. You've got to keep the gremlins away from bright light. Give them lots of food. They gotta be wet, so pool parties at night, and it's gonna go away. It's gonna be like a miracle. Yeah, uh, well, well, there's plenty more parallels to come, folks, in next week's Gremlins 2. And uh, even though, actually, even though we know that um, Gizmo's coming back and, uh, you know, Billy doesn't have to say goodbye to him forever, that whole the little bye, Billy moment does t- still just you know, resonate with me and stabs at me. It's uh, it's, it's a, a very sweet moment. I, I believe I saw two before I saw one, so it never really hit me in that, in that like, oh my God, imagine having to say goodbye to something as wonderful as Gizmo. And we'll be talking about him a lot next week because he finally comes into his own then. It's kind of, uh, Gremlins 2 is his Winter Soldier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're suddenly... This isn't freedom. This is fear. <laughs> Strange enough, I watched that not long ago. Oh, good. Because it's, it's again... Still, it's still freaking brilliant. Yeah, frighteningly relevant. 
Okay. Maybe so, if fascists take over our institutions, we should burn those institutions to the ground. It all goes. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, sorry. So before we go away for seven days and then return to witness the Gremsters take Manhattan, to my guests this week, where can people find your best stuff? We will start with Brendan. Well, if uh, speaking of Winter Soldier, um, because Independence Day feels kind of weird this year, mm-hmm. uh, I, I over the uh, the Fourth of July published a a piece about alternate uh, viewing choices for watching in in a sort of like celebrationy fireworksy mood. But if you're also feeling kind of eh about the world, for once everyone's done watching Hamilton, because I'm just assuming everyone's watching Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and so watch Hamilton. Oh, do. Oh, mm, mm, so good. Um, and so you can you can read that along with my longer stuff on normannerd.blogspot.com. On Synapse, we're uh, we're going to be covering Hamilton, and we just covered the uh, Crocodiles Eat People movie ca- uh, crawl from last year. Oh, that was an awesome movie. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so you can find that at synapse.co, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E.co, or you can follow me on Twitter at BLCAgnew, um, and then you'll just get links to all of that nonsense, along with lots of bad dad jokes. <laughs> and Neil, where can they find your best stuff? You can find me over at gameburst.co.uk, where we bring you your weekly gaming news. Yes, we're back to actually doing weekly gaming news, because you all missed us, and we wanted to talk to each other. So, yeah, we're back. Right, well, that has been all from us for this week. We'll be back next week with the new batch. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Bailey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. And a big thank you to Andy Rodriguez who commissioned this episode.
Okay, so I've got like a three-minute intro and then a bunch of bullet points about the film. But let's make this one quite a slim podcast. We do not have to blow our gremlin load in one go because uh, next week's is going to be way better. (laughs) Why am I laughing so much at gremlin load? (laughs) It's green. Okay. (laughs) Oh, dear.